So folks, put your hands together and uh, in a warm welcome for the Chief Executive Officer of the Director of Brooklyn's Museum, Alan Wynne. Ladies and gentlemen, Lady Mayor, thank you very much indeed for that uh, warm, probably undeserved welcome. I stand in front of you slightly in foreboding because, of course, uh, this is the 13th of these lectures. Um, <laughs> I hope it's going to be good for, uh, for all of us. Um, I am delighted to be here. It's a fantastic opportunity. I'm extremely grateful to uh, Rotary, uh, Shepparton and Aurora for the opportunity and the invitation to come and, uh, and speak to you. Um, I am going to ask uh, the man at the back to turn down the lights on me slightly so that I can see you a little bit. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yes, I think it's going to happen. Anyway, uh, let, let's get on with it. Um, what I'm going to do uh, tonight, uh, <clears throat> the, the title of my uh, talk is uh, Bringing a Legacy of Inspiration to Life at Brooklyn. So I want to talk, um, first of all, uh, about some of the history, what made Brooklyn so special, why it's such an important uh, place in British and international history, and how we use that legacy of the amazing aviation and motoring background of, of Brooklyn's. And then I want to go on and talk about what we're doing to really bring it alive with our current big project, the Aircraft Factory and Racetrack Revival. And then, just to let you know that although I'm retiring from uh, Brooklyn's Museum next year, my successors are going to carry on with some amazing projects that will keep Brooklyn's at the heart of innovation uh, for the next uh, part of this century. And then uh, it would be uh, unwise of me, just as James uh, made sure that you um, uh, kept in mind uh, what uh, the opportunities are here, I will make it obvious that there are some opportunities for you all to get involved with Brooklyn's Museum. Um, I always like to start uh, when I'm giving one of these uh, talks just finding out uh, how many of my audience haven't been to Brooklyn's in the last three years. Uh, is there anybody who hasn't been to Brooklyn's in the last three years? Yeah, well, Paul, my marketing man, is here and will uh, undoubtedly be uh, uh, coming to uh, explain to you the error of your ways. Um, and uh, how many of you uh, have been active in motorsport? <coughs> a few of you around, good. And, um, and how many of you have been actively involved in aviation? Excellent, right. I've got an audience to be scared of then. Great, right, so let, let's carry on. So let's talk a little bit about Brooklyn's. I'm sure you're uh, largely familiar with this wonderful place. Um, this is how Brooklyn's was. Uh, just before the Second World War, um, this two, wonderful two and three quarter mile banked oval racetrack uh, to get your bearings. That's Weybridge at the top, the Byfleet at the bottom, St George's Hill over here on the right, uh, the motoring part of Brooklyn's up here, uh, the clubhouse and the motoring village, the aviation village down here, the flying village, um, the Vickers Aircraft Factory here, and the Hawker Aircraft Factory uh, down the bottom there. And for those of you who are familiar with those magnificent men and their flying machines, uh, the sewage ponds into which Terry Thomas uh, uh, crashes deservedly are modelled on those sewage ponds right there. 
So this was a truly amazing place. And the reason why we want to celebrate it and, and talk about it uh, is, is for all the things that Brooklands was responsible for. This, this fantastic thing, when you think about it, Brooklands, uh, the racetrack and aviation site, it covers about 365 acres, which is the same as Hyde Park in London. So it's not that big a place. And when you see some of the things that happened at Brooklands over the years. It was the world's first purpose-built motor racing circuit. It's where the principles of modern motor racing were actually set. When you watch a Grand Prix and see cars in the paddock, you see drivers being brought up in front of the stewards, reporting to the clerk of the course. All those things are horse racing terms. They came into motor racing through Brooklands, because when Brooklands was opened in 1907, there was no precedent on how to run motor racing on a closed circuit, other than, rather than racing between towns. And so the Brooklyn's Automobile Racing Club borrowed the rules of horse racing. And to this day, motor racing is still run on those horse racing lines as originally pioneered at Brooklyn's. It's a place where the world land speed record, the outright land speed record, was set three times the last time in 1922. The fastest ever 500-mile race held pre-war was held at Brooklyn's. There's 80 years of continuous aviation history with people making uh, aeroplanes at Brooklyn's. More aeroplanes of more types were built and made and had their first flights at Brooklyn's than anywhere else in Europe to this day. We think Toulouse, where Airbuses are made, will catch up about 2040. Um, it's where Britain's first flying school was and where the world's first jet transport aircraft uh, was built and took off from. So, when, how did Brooklyn start? Here we go. This is building the track. Um, for those of you who are familiar with building large construction projects, um, this was a truly heroic scale project. Um, and Brooklyn's that two and three quarter mile track with an extra half mile of finishing straight on it, 100 foot wide concrete, was built in nine months flat. Uh, I'm sure that uh, the Mayor of Spellthorn won't mind me saying that uh, you're lucky to actually get a meeting with the planners inside nine months. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it, it involved some 2,000 navvies. Uh, they built three and a half miles of temporary railway line with a spur off the main Portsmouth line. Uh, it used some 200,000 tons of concrete uh, to build, or so the builders said. We've never been able to stand that up. But this is what it looked like, this, this big oval, the half mile finishing straight running through here, uh, the motor racing clubhouse. Uh, just here, this is one of the very early times of the circuit. And it was opened on the 17th of June, 1907. And here is Ethel Lock King, wife of the, uh, the owner, leading the opening parade in her 40 horsepower Atala car. Uh, this is the finishing straight of the track here, coming up onto the banking. This uh, was after a light lunch of nine courses uh, with, with accompanying wines. Um, and unbelievably, after that lunch, what was meant to be a staid parade degenerated into an informal race. <laughs> we restaged that uh, opening parade uh, on the 17th of June uh, 2007 on the centenary, and then we uh, did it again uh, just a couple of months ago on the 17th of June this year when we reopened that finishing stretch, of which more later. But Brooklyn's was more than just a racetrack. 
a whole lot of things that Brooklands did for us. In civil engineering, it made significant progress. Motorsport, in motorcycling, in cycling, in aviation, and it had a huge impact on the local economy and culture. Just in civil engineering, it was the largest concrete structure in the world at the time it was built. It had the first major reinforced concrete structure in the UK, the Hennevik Bridge, which I'll show you in a moment. It was the first major concrete roadway in the UK. They moved 300,000 tonnes of earth to build it, and according to Price and Reeves, uh, their invoice said they supplied 200,000 tonnes of concrete. Uh, but when you do the sums and find the concrete was only six inches thick um, and unreinforced, we can't make the sum add up to 200,000 tonnes unless they used to very, very heavy aggregate. Anyway, um, this is what that, that first major concrete bridge uh, looked like. Uh, it was designed by a Belgian engineer uh, called Hennebeck, um, and it was a truly amazing structure. It, uh, it was banked, obviously the, the upper surface of it was banked. It sloped from right to left, and it was curved. Uh, and it was built um, a bit like a modern sports stadium with lots of reinforced concrete columns and beams. And it stood until it was damaged in the floods of 1968. Uh, but a truly heroic thing. And uh, all these piles in the river uh, caused the uh, river way to back up seriously during those floods. But uh, that was a truly uh, magnificent structure. Motorsport, as I've mentioned um, already, uh, the, the very way in which we organised modern motorsport started out at Brooklands. It was the world's first purpose-built motor racing circuit. Um, it ran those uh, very fast races. I never tire of reminding our American friends that their great Indianapolis 500 race, um, the speeds that achieved there um, weren't, didn't match the speed of a 1935 Brooklands race until 1949. And the lap record, the outright lap record set uh, by the Napier Railton car owned by John Cobb, uh, which we still have in the museum, uh, that lap record of 143.44 miles an hour wasn't actually matched uh, as a qualifying lap at Indianapolis until 1956. So this was truly uh, a, an amazing place. And it was the birthplace of the great record breakers. Uh, Campbell's Bluebirds were built and maintained at Brooklands. Cobb's Napier Railton, a Railton Mobile Special, and most of the great record breakers were based at or raced at Brooklands. Other things that happened. The first, not only the first car to exceed 100 miles in an hour, but the very first human being in history to travel 100 miles in an hour was a guy called Percy Lambert, who drove his four and a half litre Talbot around the track in February 1913, did 103 miles in the hour. To do 100 miles in an hour in a train, you had to wait until 1964 for the first bullet trains in Japan. And aeroplanes were not travelling at 100 miles an hour until well into the First World War. It was, um, uh, it was an amazing thing uh, that, uh, that happened here. The three outright land speed records were set in 1909 and 1914 by big 200 horsepower Benzers, and as late as 1922 uh, by the, the 350 horsepower Sunbeam, and that was the last time that the land speed record was set on a closed circuit. The first British Grand Prix, unlike what Bernie Eccleston will tell you, the first British Grand Prix was held at Brooklands in 1926, and it was so good they held another one in 1927. The first ever 24-hour record run in the UK was held at Brooklands, even before the first race meeting in 1907. 
The first time that electrical timing apparatus was used at a motor race was used it was at Brooklands, and the first time that time-based handicapping in motor racing was used was here at Brooklands. Because, of course, when they started out, they did handicapping um, by looking at how fast the cars went and how heavy they were. They used to weigh the cars and their drivers, just like in horse racing. The drivers wore coloured silks up until the First World War. Um, they very quickly found that basic, basic handicapping on waiting didn't work with motor cars, so they used a time-based thing, delaying the start of the faster cars. And the Vintage Sports Car Club are still using that handicapping process in motor racing today. That great race, in, uh, that run in 1907, that um, uh, SF Edge did. This was something absolutely amazing. This guy, he was an Australian, a cyclist uh, by original profession. He sat on a 60 horsepower Napier for 24 hours on his own. He drove this car single-handedly for 24 hours. Had two cars pacing him. They changed the drivers on those regularly. But he drove this car for 24 hours on his own, averaged nearly 66 miles an hour, a record that stood for over 17 years. And it suitably annoyed the uh, residents of St. George's Hill uh, <laughs> that um, overnight racing and running at Brooklands was very quickly banned. And that led to some adventurous uh, stuff later on, uh, on how to run 24-hour races. But uh, that was uh, a truly heroic thing. We restaged that race for slot cars uh, uh, 100 years to the day after it was done. And we did manage to get some slot cars to last for 24 hours. I mentioned Percy Lambert and his amazing 100-mile-an-hour uh, run in 1913. And the record breakers, uh, like Campbell and Seagrave and, uh, and Parry Thomas. In the 1920s, here are some of those. Here's the start of the 1926 Grand Prix. Um, a whole seven cars took the start in that first Grand Prix, and several of them finished. Uh, <laughs> in, including uh, the wonderful uh, uh, one-and-a-half-litre supercharged straight-out Delages, which dominated that race as they did the following year, and we're very lucky to have one of those cars in our collection now. Now, I'm just going to try, we've been playing with this, and I think, I hope this is going to work. No, sorry, we'll just go back for a spot. Never rehearse, because, there we go. This is actually the 1926 Grand Prix um, uh, on the finishing straight that we've just uh, restored. And this is what motor racing was like. Um, you're not missing the sound. There wasn't any sound on this film. <laughs> but you'll see the temporary sandbanks uh, laid out to make chicanes in the middle of the circuit. Um, really exciting uh, stuff. And this is coming to the top of the finishing straight and going out onto the banking of the main outer circuit. And uh, we did it with motorcycles as well. Lots of races, hundreds of uh, races in the course of the history. Something like 8,000 drivers took part in races at Brooklands between 1907 and 1939. And all sorts of things were tried. Um, there were 17 different layouts used on the circuit in that time uh, to uh, make things. The pit stops were a little slower than they were now. You see uh, modern Grand Prix cars, uh, pit stop taking two and a half seconds. Two and a half minutes would have 
got you a record back in, uh, in Brooklyn's days. And you'll notice how the pits are just there on the side of the track. Uh, no, uh, no barriers to stop somebody coming past and uh, smiting you. Uh, no pressure refueling, uh, no pressure jacks, uh, all that sort of thing. Uh, but really exciting uh, motor racing. Uh, but it wasn't just the artist circuit where exciting things happened on the, on the Brooklyn's track. There was a wonderful thing called the Test Hill, uh, built in 1907 to help manufacturers develop clutches and brakes and other things on cars. And it became a wonderful little short competition course as well. Um, and the outright record for getting a car up there is just under seven and a half seconds. And the fastest ever motorcycle got up in 6.99 seconds, up 350 feet. And when you get to the top, as you still do if you go too fast, your wheels take off. <laughs> How did uh, Brooklyn's get over the problem of running 24-hour races when the residents of St George's Hill complained about the noise? You ran it as two 12-hour races and locked the cars up uh, overnight, um, and hence the great double 12 races, uh, which we keep the spirit of alive to this day. Our big annual motorsport festival in June is called the Double 12. It runs over two days on two sites, so it's the Double 12. Um, and that was the Le Mans-style start uh, of the Double 12 in 1929, and driver and mechanic running to their cars. So lots of opportunities for people to get tripped up by fast-starting motor cars. Unfortunately, um, after uh, a period in the 1920s when um, ladies were frowned upon, uh, by the 1930s, ladies were actually um, uh, very prominent in motor racing in Brooklyn's as well, which is very good. Here are two of the great uh, lady racing drivers of the period, Doreen Evans and Kay Peter, um, who were competing on equal terms by the mid-1930s with, uh, with the blokes and often beating them. Um, some of the fastest drivers, in fact, some of the, uh, some of the drivers who won the 120 mile an hour and 130 mile an hour badges were uh, ladies, which was um, very reassuring uh, in this day and age. And here is the fastest car of all around the Brooklyn's track. Come on, wake up, nice little machine. The great 24-litre, 530-horsepower Napier Railton. That car weighs over two tonnes. Um, uh, the bump on the banking was sufficiently severe that two tonnes of motor car travelling at 130 mile an hour takes off. Um, I drive this car regularly. I'm, uh, I'm uh, very, very privileged to do so. It's in full running order. It's the most amazing motor car. Uh, we use it regularly. And that is the car that lapped Brooklyn's at 143.44 miles an hour. And just to get that into context, on a two and three quarter mile track like Brooklyn's, bumpy concrete, that's getting around that two and three quarter miles in 69 seconds flat. Um, and by the way, that, that car also, uh, in 1936, became the first car ever to average 150 miles an hour for 24 hours. Uh, did that on the salt flats of Bonneville, and that's travelling over 3,600 miles in 24 hours. Used four drivers to uh, spell them, uh, but, uh, and uh, it is a really amazing motor car, and we're very, very privileged to own it. All while all this was going on, aviation was also making its, um, making its um, presence felt at Brooklyn's. So I'll just go back there. We're, uh... Aviation started after one 
ill-advised experiment where a Frenchman called Bellamy uh, got locked king for a bunch of money and never built an aeroplane in 1907. Uh, but Ali and Verdon Rowe turned up in 1908 with a home-built aeroplane, uh, assembled it in a shed on the side of the truck and tried to fly it. He got it airborne but only towed behind another motor car. Um, he, very, he was then thrown off the track because he was disrupting the motor racing. But by 1909, uh, the clerk of the course had realised that aviation was actually the coming thing. And so we had public flying demonstrations. The first one in the UK was at Brooklands. Um, it rapidly became the major place for training pilots. Uh, more pilots were trained uh, for the First World War in Brooklands than anywhere else. Um, the world's first flight ticket office was at Brooklands. Um, the first building from which tickets were sold for flights and aeroplanes. It's a tiny little brick hut that we still have. It was moved brick by brick from its original location to inside the, uh, the museum grounds. It is, in effect, the great granddaddy of all airline terminals. And it's as good as The first lady to get a pilot's license in the UK was Hilda Hewlett. She got it at Brooklands. She then went on to run a flying school and set up an aircraft manufacturing company, as you do, and built several hundred aeroplanes during the First World War. Brooklands was the home of the Vickers Vimy, uh, the first aeroplane to fly the Atlantic with Alcock and Brown, first to fly from England to Australia, first to fly from England to South Africa, and we have an, a flyable replica of one of those. And it was the home of the two great World War II aircraft, the Hawker Hurricane and the Vickers Wellington, and there's a lot more to come. That's an interesting one. <laughs> Amongst the people who learned to fly at Brooklands were Tommy Sopworth. This is him in uh, his first aeroplane. Uh, he then went on to build his own because he didn't like the ones that he was flying. Um, and he went on to become significant manufacturer, the, probably the single most important manufacturer of aircraft during the First World War. All his aeroplanes, uh, the bits were put together at, uh, at uh, Kingston on Thames and then they all came down to Brooklands for final assembly and flown away from there. And Sopworth, of course, after the war became Hawker. There's Hilda Hewlett, the first lady to have a British pilot's license. And there's the Vickers Vimy, uh, the Brooklyn's built aeroplane that was first to fly the Atlantic in 1919. And here are some of the young ladies who were building uh, aeroplanes during the First World War in the Vickers factory. Uh, when all the blokes had been sent off to war, these were the ladies who actually put aeroplanes together. And by the time of the Second World War, um, even more aeroplanes being built, some two and a half thousand Wellington bombers, 3,000 Hurricane fighters, 800 Warwick bombers were built at uh, Brooklands in that period. Uh, really important. And uh, here are Wellington's uh, fuselages being built to the amazing geodetic design of one Barnes Wallace before he designed the dancing bomb. And then after the war, aviation became even more important. Vickers took the site over in 1946. For those of you who dabble in a little bit of property speculation, in 1946 Vickers bought the um, 365 acres of Brooklands from the Trap Company for the princely sum of £330,000. And if we could go and buy uh, an acre of Surrey land for less than £1,000 now, we would all be very happy, wouldn't we? So the world's first person pure jet airliner was built by Vickers uh, at Brooklands in 1946, the name Viking. The first turboprop airliner, the Viscount, which was also the first turbine-powered airliner ever to go into airline service. Britain's first V-bomber, the Valiant, um, all, fifth, uh, all 102 production Valiants built at Brooklands. The biggest 
aircraft ever put into production in the UK, the Vickers VC-10, an entirely Brooklyn's production. And we're very lucky. We actually own two complete VC-10s and two part VC-10s. And one of our VC-10s, the last one ever built, therefore the last heavy airliner ever built totally in the UK, uh, we keep as a live aeroplane at Dunsfold Aerodrome. We have a wonderful team of volunteers who keep her fully alive and taxiable. And uh, watch the website for the opportunities to go and see that aeroplane in action. More of Concorde was built in Brooklyn than anywhere else in Europe. Uh, so a third of every uh, Concorde was built at Brooklyn's, which is why we have a Concorde now. And as I mentioned, nearly 18,900 aeroplanes of 260 different types were built at Brooklyn's over an 80-year period. This is what the factory looked like in the 1960s. Those two huge buildings in the foreground are the ones uh, where VC-10s and vanguards uh, were built in the late 50s and early 60s. And there's one of those great VC-10 airliners, one of the few that actually came back to Brooklyn's. I was talking to somebody earlier who had the terrifying sound of one of these things coming back over her house um, back in 1985 when the Sultan of Oman donated his private VC-10 complete with double beds and gold taps uh, and uh, it flew in to become uh, one of the very first uh, aircraft which, the, uh, uh, which now formed the, uh, the Brooklyn's aviation collection. And you can see the runway was quite short and so they had to touch down very early. I think the wheels of that just got over the perimeter track before they touched the ground. And there we are, Concorde being built at Brooklyn's. Uh, this is a very important photograph because uh, those of you with good eyesight can see little number 202 on the front of this Concorde fuselage. That is the fuselage of the Concorde, which now stands proudly inside Brooklyn's museum. Going back to motor racing for a moment, it wasn't only cars that raced at Brooklyn's. Uh, motorcycling was very important. About as many people competed in motorcycling as they did in car racing. Uh, the first motorcycle race meeting was in 1908. And just think, when we were talking about cars lapping at 143 miles an hour, imagine lapping rough concrete on a motorcycle with no suspension at an average speed of 124 miles an hour. And even better, Eric Ferniehow and his Bruff Superior hitting a speed along the back straight at Brooklyn's at 143 miles an hour uh, on a bike with no suspension. They were the true heroes. There they are, crouched down, riding them like, uh, like horses. And bicycles. When you see the, uh, the uh, ride uh, London Ride 100 uh, thing coming through our area. We keep trying to remind the BBC, they don't really take any notice, we remind other people as well, that the place where mass start cycle racing actually started in this country was Brooklyn's. It was illegal to race bikes on the public highway at the time that Brooklyn's was open, so you couldn't have mass start bicycle races like we now have. And so the first ones actually started at Brooklyn's. And we have records of over 7,000 people who subsequently raced at Brooklyn's on bikes. And they not only raced on the flat, but they raced up the Test Hill. And there they are out on the circuit. Um, this is what um, Master Bicycle Racing looked like. And then there was the influence of Brooklyn's on the local economy and culture. The motor racing industry had its, uh, had its base at Brooklyn's. Before, up until 1933, Brooklyn's was the only permanent motor racing circuit in the country. By the time of the Second World War, uh, the outbreak of the Second World War in 1939, there were still only three circuits in the country, permanent motor racing circuits. 
The motor racing industry is now, in fact, that number's out of date. I think last year, the uh, motor racing industry was worth £6 billion to the UK economy. The aircraft factories here employed at their peak 14,000 people. And the aircraft factories, they were building houses during the First World War to house the employees who were bringing in from outlying areas. And Brooklyn's really was the making of the, the towns of Weybridge and Byfleet and uh, Cobham and Adelstone. That's where they grew from small hamlets into uh, the towns they are today as a result of the in industry at Brooklyn's. And of course now Brooklyn's is home to the biggest museum in the county. So let's talk about Brooklyn's, the museum. 32 acres of land. We employ the equivalent full-time of 35 staff with over 700 volunteers. I think I've actually got 800 volunteer names on the database. Some of them are a little irregular in turning up, but it's one of the biggest volunteer workforces uh, in the country. We have 10,000 card-carrying members um, uh, of our Brooklyn's Trust membership uh, organization. We did 180,000 visitors last year. We expect to do a lot more next year when our big project has come to fruition. We own half a mile of the original track. We own 40 major aircraft exhibits, uh, either complete aeroplanes or, or major sections like, uh, like fuselages. And at any one time, we'll have 65 vehicles, two-wheeled and four, on show. It's a fantastic place. Uh, motoring, there we have it. There's just happened to be two cars uh, that ran in the first Grand Prix in 1926 and 27. Um, so really important part of our history. We keep motor racing and motor sport going. Uh, we have uh, competition events which we host on the, uh, the Mercedes-Benz circuit next door to us and on our own land. Um, we have clubs like the Vintage Sports Car Club come and run competitions with us each year. We organise huge days uh, for the public. Italian Car Day, there's a fantastic thing. About 6,000 people, 1,500 Italian cars. Uh, every May, uh, the Saturday of every May bank holiday. New Year's Day, probably the biggest, well certainly as far as uh, we're aware, the biggest gathering of classic cars in this country on New Year's Day. Everybody gets their classic car out on New Year's Day and takes it somewhere. Last year we had 7,000 people and 1,600 classic cars on the site on New Year's Day. Um, and it's well worth coming out to see. We try and keep aviation alive as well. Um, as you can see from these photos, we actually, wherever possible, uh, have the engines of our ancient aeroplanes runnable. So that's our Sopwith Camel, complete with 1917 rotary aircraft engine. Uh, on the right is our big Vickers Vimy replica. That aeroplane, a direct scale replica of the one that flew the Atlantic and, flew to, and the ones that flew to Australia and South Africa. This aeroplane has done all three of those flights. It flew the Atlantic non-stop in uh, 2005. Funnily enough, it took nearly two hours longer than it took Alcock and Brown uh, back in 19. They had better winds. But uh, we've now retired that aeroplane from flying. Uh, the CAA didn't like it, uh, but we keep it uh, active. Its engines can be run. We're just doing some work on it at the moment so that we can run it later in the year. And we start kids off as early as we can thinking about aeroplanes, our pedal planes uh, work very hard during the school holidays and other things. And of course, we're the home of Concorde. We have the complete aeroplane, we have the world's only Concorde simulator, 
uh, and we have the ex Heathrow uh, Gate Guardian Concord as our Gate Guardian at the bottom of Brooklyn's Drive, the joint entrance to Mercedes-Benz World and to Brooklyn's Museum. Um, this aeroplane uh, gets well, um, around about 40,000 uh, people going through it every year on a half-hour experience. The Concorde Simulator, we have 12 Concorde Captains. I think you had a Concorde Captain, a very well-known one, give this lecture a couple of years ago, Captain Mike Bannister. He is the leader of the 12 uh, Concorde Captains who act as instructors on the Concorde Simulator, and uh, we put hundreds of people a year through that on, uh, on training sessions. We also celebrate the rest of aviation and engineering technology, for instance, uh, in the form of Barnes Wallace's great high altitude research chamber, the most sophisticated and advanced high altitude research laboratory in the world at the time that it was built uh, in 1947. And those of you who live in the area can be very pleased that it no longer operates uh, because when they switched it on, to take it down to minus 65 centigrade and a 20th of sea level atmospheric pressure. Uh, it absorbed about a megawatt of electricity and the lights in Weybridge used to go very much. <laughs> right, that's where we got to. Now, what are we doing to take all that fantastic legacy, all those amazing things that happened at Brooklands over the years and bring them to the attention of today's youngsters, tomorrow's uh, engineers, tomorrow's technologists, the people who are going to keep the economy of the UK running in the future. We are embarked on and almost at the end of the biggest thing that we have ever done at Brooklands, which is the Aircraft Factory and Racetrack Revival Project. It's a seven-figure project. It's trying to be an eight-figure project, and we're trying desperately <laughs> to keep it out of that segment. But up until last year, we had an aircraft hangar standing on the finishing straight of the racetrack just here. Um, over the last two years, we have built a completely new building to house our uh, active aeroplanes on the top and underneath new workshops and stores. And we have picked up this hangar, restored it and reassembled it off the side of the racetrack and reopened the section of racetrack. And that in a nutshell is what we've done with all this money. So what have we actually done? The finishing straight, this is what it used to look like up until November last year. This hangar was put up in a hurry in November 1940 because the Germans had just popped by and dropped a few bombs on the Wellington assembly line, unfortunately killing about 90 people, but seriously disrupting the Wellington assembly line. So some hangars were thrown up to act as new final assembly sheds. This is one of them. So in 1940, Wellingtons were being built in that building, but it completely obstructed the line in the finishing straight. So we've picked it up from there and moved it over into those trees beyond. This is what it looked like last year. And now this was the, this was the, uh, the original diagram that we used to explain to people what we were intending to do, opening up the vista from the clubhouse all the way up to the banking so you could see it there. What we were trying to do was recreate the sort of things that you could do back in the day when the finishing straight was open. This just happens to be the biggest ever event held at Brooklyn's pre-war. The Ford Motor Company hired the track for the day. 
30,000 people came in for free to look at the Brooklyn's, uh, the, the Ford uh, models for 1939. And they did all sorts of weird and wonderful things, driving cars through hoops of fire and plates of glass and uh, doing silly things, as well as uh, trying to sell the cars uh, to the public. But this is the finishing straight of the track. This is the paddock in front of the clubhouse. Uh, this is what we're trying to recreate, this fantastic feeling of things going on at the heart of the museum. Right. Again. This is far too trigger happy. So this is what the finishing straight looked like from the other end, looking down from the banking. Um, so you can see beyond there the line of the finishing straight uh, going off into the car parks of the Heights office block next door. <coughs> this is what it was like in 1926, the start of the Grand Prix again. This is all we were able to do on the finishing straight up until the uh, current project, just uh, 100 metres or so of concrete here that we could play with, and obviously very restricting in what we could do. One of these days I'll get a licence to drive this thing. June the 17th this year, we reopened the finishing straight. No hangar. All that length of concrete now foreshortened by the telephoto lens. But the telephoto lens allows you to identify one of our uh, audience members in his uh, Alvis tour there. Evening, Richard. Um, uh, but uh, here we were with over 100 of the Brooklyn's cars being exercised on here. And you can see the line of the track going off into the car parks next door. Really exciting development. Uh, the following day, we actually brought competition back onto the finishing straight uh, for the first time since 1939 on the full length of the surviving uh, straight. And we had another go at recreating that original uh, opening parade of uh, 1907. And needless to say, we did not give the drivers a nine-course light lunch with wines to follow. So that, that was the first thing we did. We've reopened the finishing straight of the racetrack. And on the right there, you can see the new flight shed building and the relocated hangar. Now, what's going on inside the hangar? We are recreating an aircraft factory so that we can show uh, the people of today and the engineers of tomorrow how aircraft were designed and built and developed over an 80-year period at Brooklyn. One of the most amazing things is the aircraft industry, the aerospace industry as a whole, is worth £24 billion a year to the UK economy. And unless you have the security clearance to get into the Typhoon assembly line at Wharton, there's nowhere where a member of the public can actually see aeroplanes being assembled. And so we thought we'd better show people what it's like to have an aircraft factory. So we took this scruffy old hangar, uh, as it was, leaking water all over our valuable aeroplanes and we're turning it into an amazing experience where we're going to show aeroplanes as they are being built. Um, so in uh, a lot of them in pieces, showing how all the components come together to form an aeroplane. And while we're doing it, we're going to have workshops scattered throughout the building where people can try out for themselves the skills of building aeroplanes. So, if you've never often, if you have ever wondered, what's it like to actually rivet bits of metal together, or bend and roll and fold them? What's it like to stitch fabric on, onto a piece of structure? What's it like 
shape a bit of wood. I was absolutely astounded the other day. We were we were trying some of this stuff out. I took two of my staff with us with me to uh, to where we were trying out some of these uh, things, and I completely lost uh, my head of learning and my curator who got stuck in to proving to each other that they were better at using a spoke shave, neither of them having ever used a spoke shave before. And I just couldn't get them to come back and worry about other things. So I'm very, very hopeful that what we're going to have is a truly immersive experience. What we're going to do, as well as just letting people try these things out, we're going to give some theatre to the whole thing. So when, especially youngsters, come in on organised school trips, which is a really important part of what we do, uh, 13,500 kids came into the museum last year on organised curriculum-based visits. With this uh, project now we can do even more. But when they come in, they're going to get dressed up in factory coats. They're going to get a clocking on card. They're going to clock onto the factory. They're going to go around and do a mini apprenticeship, seeing and trying out these various skills for themselves, clocking out at the end of the day, giving a real feel for what actually went on, uh, those 14,000 of their ancestors who built aeroplanes at Brooklyn, they can try it out for themselves and hopefully they'll be inspired to go and stick with the STEM subjects, the science, technology, engineering, maths, stick with those and you know, instead of going off and doing hairdressing or whatever, golf course management, and actually get the people we need to run the aerospace, the motorsport industries, the people who are going to feed James Dyson's amazing uh, uh, initiatives in building Hoovers and electric cars that he announced today, all that sort of thing. We need kids who've got this background in science and technology. And I'm delighted to be talking about this in a school which accepts and understands that. And I'm sorry James had to go because I've been banging on him about it. He's got to get more of his kids coming down to see what we're doing. So where have we got to? This is what the factory is going to look like. Aircraft on a production line running through the centre, including as a centrepiece, our big Wellington bomber. Uh, bits going from the very early days in the foreground here, right back to um, uh, parts of Concord, um, a valiant bomber nose at the far end there, aircraft and pieces on either side, plus all the bits that go in to an aeroplane, engines, bits of avionics, uh, undercarriages, all these things that have to go into an aeroplane, all on display where you can see them and touch them and see what they're all about. Where have we got to? Well, the other day we did manage to get into the factory, uh, our Wellington bomber, minus its wings at the moment, uh, because we've got to move it around a lot. Um, over the last few weeks we've done some truly amazing things, like lifting one of the original prototypes of the Harrier jump jet, onto a stand 20 feet in the air. This was a real engineering exercise, so I'm very proud of uh, the way that our staff, volunteers and contractors actually managed to work this out so that you could lift this aeroplane up with no room for a crane above it to actually pick it up. So it was jacked up there, uh, lifted by winches. Very exciting uh, development. It looks great. Um, here is uh, the fuselage of the Supermarine Swift, which for a few brief weeks in 1953 held the world airspeed record set over the desert in Libya. Um, this is the only part of the aeroplane that survived, uh, but it's on display in the hangar. One of our works cranes in the background, um, the engines coming in and going on display, 
all this sort of stuff. Today we moved a hawker hunter into the uh, uh, into the building. Yesterday it was a couple of engines and some workbenches. So every day at the moment we're moving things in to make this a really exciting place, completely different from all the other aircraft museums in the country. Uh, the complete antithesis of the dead things in sheds, uh, which is what so many museums are about. This is going to be a living, live place where people can really try things out and hardly a touch screen in sight. <laughs> Next door and connected to this building is our flight shed. Uh, you go through the aircraft factory, go up onto a mezzanine floor where you can try designing aircraft, one of the few places where you will get a touch screen, and then walk across a, a bridge into the flight shed where we'll keep our active aeroplanes, um, all of these, uh, um, with the exception of a couple on the side there. Most of them will have engines that can be run. We take them out onto the finishing straight of the racetrack, run their engines, taxi them about. But there we will also tell the story of the pilots who flew uh, the aeroplanes, great people like the ATA ancillary pilots during the Second World War who collected those hurricanes and wellingtons from Brooklyn and took them off to their squadrons. Uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic place and all those aeroplanes where we can, we'll get them out and let people touch them and see them. Two of them have open cockpits so the kids can get in and pretend to be fighter pilots and things like that. Underneath is a fantastic new air-conditioned archive store and a training workshop where we can teach up to 30 of our volunteers a year the skills of looking after old aeroplanes. And this is a really important part. We're teaching the next generation, taking the skills that have been passed on to us by the people who built them originally, uh, we're passing those skills on to the next generation so they can keep on looking after our aeroplanes and looking after the aeroplanes of other people because we've got other museums already queuing up to uh, take part in our training courses for teaching people how to do, do this vital maintenance and restoration work. And we've got aeroplanes in there as well. This was proving that we can actually get a two-seat Harrier into the building. There's our Hawker Hurricane, shortly to be a running exhibit, uh, being wheeled in. Um, sorry, it's a very, very dull photo, but uh, quite a few of the aeroplanes now gathered in that building. So all this, as I said, is, a, is about learning, quite apart from everybody having a great day out coming, coming to Brooklyn's Museum. But learning is central to everything we're doing. This is the, the real thing here, passing this, you know, the skills, the knowledge, the enthusiasm on. 13,500 kids we can get through the place at the moment on curriculum-based visits. By next year, we'll have a capacity for 25,000 a year. And we cater for all ages, from the very youngest all the way through to U3A. And we've got, uh, we've got arrangements in place with local schools, places like uh, Brooklyn's College, We've got MOUs with our local universities in Surrey and Kingston, uh, where we're developing things uh, with them. Uh, their students take part in activities we do. They're informing what we do. We, uh, we have all sorts of lesson plans. We can teach people about the Second World War. We do courses uh, for, for students on, on engineering things and gears and all sorts of things like that. We have teacher panels, student panels. We're really heavily involved in the education sector. I'm very, very proud of our central role in that. Uh, here's some of the things we're doing, uh, looking at the, for the very young kids, our mini ACES uh, thing, which is running at the moment, getting the sub-five-year-olds engaged 
and all this stuff before they've uh, even learned how to turn on the TV and watch CBBS. Uh, and we've got these fantastic Saturday science clubs running. We've got teenagers who don't all go and watch football or sit in their room playing with their uh, with their computers and uh, and iPads. We've got these youngsters coming out and actually spending a day with us in the Saturday Science Club. And it's really, really reassuring to see them taking part in these things uh, and getting involved and sticking with those uh, STEM subjects. Really exciting stuff to do. And then I mentioned our Aviation Heritage Skills uh, uh, operation. This is where we're going to be teaching our own volunteers how to pick up the skills that, uh, that were uh, uh, present in the aircraft factory and using those to go forward and to teach other people how to do it really important part of, of what we're doing. And involving others in so many ways um, with, our, with our youth advisory panels and so forth. All these people have been so important to what we're doing. And the last part of this great project, Beyond the Learning, is the one uh, that I'm especially proud of because in a moment of madness, the, uh, the Brooklyn's Trust members, that fantastic supporter organization, 6,000 memberships, 10,000 card-carrying members. Um, they got together and believe me when I said you guys can fund recreating the wonderful horse racing style scoreboard which used to dominate the paddock of Brooklyn's the racetrack. And um, far too many pounds later, I'm still collecting money from the BTM for this, uh, but we now have this fantastic scoreboard um, works exactly as the original did, uh, built in exactly the same way as the original. Authenticity is very, very important to us at Brooklyn's Museum. And so, for instance, these great big columns here, uh, just as they were there, all riveted together. Try and find a modern engineering company that wants to spend the time drilling holes and riveting this thing together instead of just bunging it through an automated welding machine. Uh, but we got it done and it's a truly fantastic thing and the real icing on the cake. Why are we doing it? As I said, it's all about trying to inspire, uh, trying to inspire the next generation to be the technicians, the scientists, the engineers that this country needs. Aerospace, 24 billion. Motorsport, 6 billion. Why can we do it where others can't? We're uniquely placed in Surrey with an easy reach of 600 schools. That's why Surrey Council are backing what we're doing. They're putting money and they've helped us with uh, funding a new teaching place, uh, a, a new staff uh, position within the, within the organization because we can reach all those schools and give them stuff that they can't afford to do on their own. It's a really important part of what we do. And we've got this fantastic legacy that we can use as the teaching aids. We don't have to make teaching aids. We've got them sitting there. We've got aeroplanes and pieces. We've got motor cars and pieces that people can look at. We can show them so much with what we have. And of course, we want to give people a fantastic day out. And we need to get enough visitors coming in, paying us enough money to help keep this wonderful 32-acre site alive. So how have we paid for this amazing development at Brooklyn's Museum? We obviously didn't spend any money on technology. Um, the total cost of this project is eight and a quarter million pounds. The Heritage Lottery Fund have backed us to the tune of five and a half million pounds, which is fantastic. 
Um, we're very, very lucky that we have the support of our local MP, um, now the Chancellor of the Exchequer, um, in managing to get some funds from his predecessor out of the LIBOR Fines Fund. We actually got a million pounds out of that fund. Half a million of it we used on this project, half a million we used on other essential uh, infrastructure work, works on the site. Uh, and then a whole string of major donors uh, who've given us anything up to a quarter of a million pounds each uh, uh, in the, uh, the match funding that we had to raise to go with the, uh, with the lottery funding. There's some fantastic big names in that list and there are also hundreds and hundreds of individuals who've given everything from a fiver. People have pledged so much a month for the next three years. And, uh, other people have given outright gifts. Uh, it's fantastic what we've been able to achieve and it really reassures us that having done this this time round, we've got the backing of the community in such a way that we can tackle other things in the future. Just a small reminder, I've underlined it there in case any of you have poor eyesight, we still have £180,000 to go on this project. Um, and uh, my colleague Paul, sitting in the front row here, has some of the uh, brochures to deal with the uh, uh, with that final fundraising raising push with him, along with a lot of other stuff on on the museum and how to become a member, how to become a volunteer, and all sorts of other things, which we'll refer to a little later. But we've got a lot more to go because although we've achieved this transformation of Brooklyn's museum, we've tripled the size of the business in the last uh, 14 years. Um, we've got it up you know, from fewer than uh, 60,000 visitors a year to over 180,000 visitors a year. We've done tremendous things. We've, we've brought in Concord, we've restored buildings, we've restored that great stratosphere chamber, we installed a 4D theatre, we've restored buildings, we've restored concrete. We've done all these things, but there's a lot more to go. We have a fantastic collection of aeroplanes sitting outside. They need to go undercover. We have a 110-year-old bit of concrete as I mentioned at the beginning, it was built without any reinforcing in the concrete. It's six inches thick. It breaks up. It gets damaged by frost. We've got to restore that. We have the 1937 Campbell Circuit, a major part of that that needs restoration. We'd like to recreate the Hennepin Bridge, which took the track over the river. We have some fantastic restoration projects underway at the moment, both cars and aeroplanes. And I'll just take you through a few of those. This is a master plan of the site as we want to have it in a few years' time. We've moved the hangar off the finishing straight. We've built the flight shed next door to it. We'd like to extend the flight shed. We want to move our entrance from where it currently is here over to the big bridge here, put a new shop and entrance building there. We want to put all the outside aeroplanes undercover in a big new building. We want to put in extra buildings here to house our uh, motorcycles and bicycles. We want to expand the education centre in here. So there's lots and lots of things for people to concentrate on going forward. Here's our aircraft park. Aeroplanes jumbled together, all standing outside, all gently corroding in the lovely um, British atmosphere. Uh, we'd like to do something about that. We've got engineers and architects working on plans for how we can put this together to make something which is appropriate to Brooklyn's, doesn't hide the view of the racetrack, um, but keeps these aeroplanes undercover. This is what the aeroplanes look like at the moment, all parked up, Concorde at the front here, VC-10, um, the Vanguard, 
the BAC 111, which isn't even there at the moment, it's parked over here on this picture, uh, Viking and Varsity in the background, and then the instructional airframes which belong to Brooklyn's College, because uh, the students come down and work on those, and we keep them informed. That's what they look like at the moment. This is what we want to do, put them undercover, all in a nice chronological order, so you start here and walk around. And that story from there, that's the Vickers Viking of 1946, um, a converted bomber, in effect. You follow around here and you get to Concord, and the distance from there to there, which is about 50 yards, is 23 years. And those two aeroplanes were designed by the same design team, and the aircraft were built in exactly the same factory. People started their careers on this and finished them on that. And all happened at Brooklyn's, and that's the story we want to tell. The backing, the bits that we haven't restored yet, are in increasingly terrible condition. We need to do more and more about that, restoring bits of the backing as we have the finishing straight. You can see here how it's slumping. This is the area near the competitor's tunnel where the concrete is actually <coughs> slumping away. We need urgently to get in and tackle that. The Campbell Circuit, which is the, uh, the roadway which we use to bring event traffic into the site, uh, is all crazed and breaking up, as you can see in this uh, detail here. We need to get in and, uh, and restore that. There's a spring under that, which really helps uh, keeping the concrete in good order. So we've got to do a major restoration work there. This is what the back of the Hennepin Bridge looked like. We'd love to recreate that. Unfortunately, the Environment Agency won't let us because you can't stick all this stuff in the, in the riverbed. Um, we'd have to do a single-span bridge, but we'd like a bridge in the spirit of this to take the track across the river and join up to the bit that belongs to Mercedes-Benz next door. We're very fortunate. We've been working with Historic England Surrey Council and Elmbridge Council on a conservation management plan for the entire 365 acres, everything that survives from the Brooklyn's track and from the aviation era. There's a lot of work to be done and we've created this fantastic thing which has just been out for consultation, a conservation management plan, which is, if you like it, a Haynes workshop manual for everything that's left of Brooklyn's. And there's a lot to be done. I won't tell you where this is, but it's on the track. Um, this is part of this fantastic ancient monument, the world's first motor racing circuit, and that's the condition it's in at the moment. And those trees in the background are actually on the track. This is the sort of thing that in the wider community we need to get people engaged, the people who own these other bits of the track, we need to get them engaged in thinking about it, what this fantastic legacy is and how it should be properly looked after. That's the top of the, uh, the track in, an, in another part. This is a surviving bit of the original uh, wooden planks at the top in that area to stop people running over the top. It's fantastic stuff that needs to be saved. So um, we've, uh, we've published for consultation uh, this fantastic um, conservation management plan and the owner's guide, uh, the, the simplified uh, book on how to look after your ancient concrete. Um, so this is a really important uh, uh, initiative that we're taking. And uh, if anybody sees anything about that um, and wants to get involved in helping us get the message out to the community that we've really got to look after the rest of Brooklyn's, then please get in touch. We're restoring things as we go. This is the fourth fastest car ever around the Brooklyn's track, the great Duesenberg single-seater as raced by Whitney Strait. 
Uh, we're totally reconstructing an engine for this. Uh, the engine was completely worn out through having been used in three different racing cars pre-war and a speedboat post-war. And uh, we, we've had to effectively reconstruct it. The only things we've saved are the camshafts and the cylinder blocks. Everything else has had to be uh, remade. This is one of that heroic team of little one and a half litre Grand Prix Delages which dominated Grand Prix racing in 1926 and 27. They won the British Grand Prix both years. This is one of those cars that came second in the 1927 British Grand Prix. Um, I had the unfortunate uh, experience of uh, having a, an engine failure on it when I was demonstrating it at the Goodwood Festival of Speed a few years ago and we're now just started work on completely reconstructing the engine for that. Uh, and uh, we've been showing off the remains of the engine, uh, fundraising to get people involved in this fantastic project. We're building a new engine for this, which is a replica of the Blériot, which uh, Blériot flew across the uh, channel in 1909. We're having uh, an original 1912 Anzani aircraft engine rebuilt for that, again at vast expense. My finance director keeps asking me, where are you going to get the money from to do this? I talk to people like you. Um, <laughs> last year, we rescued the two simulators on which RAF crew learned how to fly VC-10 tankers. And uh, uh, this is what they look like at Bryce Norton. We've rescued them. We've put them into storage. This is one of them on its way to storage at Vista. And it, we want to restore the, one of those to running order to sit alongside our Concorde simulator. <laughs> air-to-air tanking and this is what that looks like inside so you can see there's a lot of restoration work to be done so how can you solve all our future problems you can get involved in what we do at Brooklands you can come and visit us we're open 360 days a year we take a couple of days off over Christmas but other than that we're around we're there for you to come and see. come to one of our special events be it Italian car day or the motorsport day that we're going to be running in a couple of weeks time use our hospitality we have a fantastic hospitality operation we can take groups from half a dozen up to 220 uh, and uh, give them fine dining or a sandwich become a member get free entry to the museum for all but a few uh, handful of events each year where you might have to pay a small premium of two or three quid get a bi-monthly magazine come to members talks and events and if you join at the highest level you get extra visitor privileges bring guests in for free and access to our club bar and donate to our projects and there's a website address there it's very important my email address david nagel become a volunteer this is one of the great things that people can do. We have over 700 active volunteers helping us run Brooklyn's Museum. They do everything from guiding, stewarding, restoring, looking after our archives, acting as marshals at events. They clear uh, rubbish off the track, grub the weeds out. They do all sorts of things. This is a small selection of them gathered around last year while the Lord Lieutenant handed our volunteer community uh, the Queen's Award for Voluntary Service and uh, we managed to get over 200 of them all lined up uh, sitting in front of the Napier Railton there um, and we really need more volunteers all the time. We'd be delighted that people will come and help us. Just a taste of the sort of events that we run. This, uh, this coming weekend, Brooklyn's Morgan Day. Following weekend, Motorsport Day with Formula One cars running on the Mercedes track. The week after that, Aviation Day. The week after that, the London Bus Museum. 
uh, on site runs its annual transport fest. Half term week, we've got half term activities, car rides, bus rides, things for young kids to do. Bring your classic car along to our classic breakfast on the 29th. Come to our military vehicles day, see people driving through the thick mud on the, on the Mercedes 4x4 course. Come and see something truly extraordinary, the 120th anniversary of the first motor race in this country uh, with little three-wheeled Dion tricycles, um, uh, which will be out on our track on the 29th of November and, of course, New Year's gathering on, on New Year's Day. But there's lots more than that. Torchlight tours, where we introduce you to the ghosts of Brooklyn, uh, running once a month um, uh, for, the, for the next five months, and especially the Halloween one on the 31st of October. Our BTM organisation running talks, just look at that, uh, I think there's eight or nine talks, evening talks that they'll be running between now and the 1st of March. Santa on the VC10, don't go to a uh, shopping centre somewhere and have your kids sit on an expensive plastic Santa knee, come and meet Santa on the VC10 uh, in, uh, in that wonderful uh, Sultan of Oman VC10, or come along try one of our Concord special days, you'll get the opportunity to buy your way into one of those later on this evening. That's a very brief overview. I could bang on for hours. I was hoping to keep on talking until it stopped raining so I could drive home and drive. But I think I've done my bit. I promised to talk for an hour. I've talked just over that. Um, I think that's probably where I should stop. I could, as I say, bang on a lot further and introduce you to 110 uh, different claims to fame that Brooklyn's has to coincide with our 110th anniversary. But I think that's enough for you, it's enough for me. Uh, thank you very much for listening and paying attention. And, uh, provide some uh, challenge to Alan to, to, for the difficult questions. Hello, Nick. Hello. Uh, you said about the, uh, the difficulty in uh, persuading the other owners of the track to maintain it. Is there no thought of acquiring the rest of the circuit? Um, yeah, uh, it's always... A, if somebody turned around and said, here, have a piece of uh, the circuit that we don't want anymore, yeah, we'd probably say yes. But, of course, it's a, it's a bit of a poison chalice because then we have to look after it. Um, and what we are volunteering to do at the moment is, um, is to help people look after their bits of the track. Um, so uh, uh, our, um, our, our contractor who looks after our bit in terms of uh, keeping it free of vegetation uh, was out looking at some of the other sections of the track with Historic England uh, only this week. Um, and we're, and we've all, we're already talking to one of the owners who said, yep, I'll pay you and you look after our section of track. And that would be really good for us. Um, you know, what we have to be careful of is taking on the, uh, the responsibility of, of a chunk of 110-year-old concrete without the funding to make sure that we can look after it properly and fix the concrete and dig the tree roots out and everything else. But yes, we are open to conversations uh, with, uh, with our fellow owners about either looking after their bits of track or taking them into care. Right. Uh, could you come forward, Mike, with your mic? <laughs> Could you announce yourself and then uh, and then 
speaking to the, the mic there. Sorry, I'll announce I'm Keith. <laughs> Keith? Hi. Uh, one of your cells on a bullet point said something about tethered cycling at 140 plus miles an hour. What, what exactly is that? Right. Um, uh, this amazing guy called Bruce Bursford, who is unfortunately no longer with us. He was uh, killed in a cycling accident a few years ago. But he tethered... Um, uh, a fantastic carbon fibre racing bike onto a pair of rollers and fitted the biggest drive sprocket you've ever seen on a bicycle, it's about that diameter, and sat on this bike and pedalled it uh, and got it up to speed so that the equivalent speed that he was running on the rollers was just over 200 miles an hour. The bike is there. The, the bike is there in the rollers in our historic bicycle collection in the back of the ERA shed. Come and look at it. It's got the narrowest bicycle saddle you've ever seen. It must be the most uncomfortable bike ever. Right, run over here. Announce yourself. Uh, hi, Alan. Uh, fantastic speech. I'm, I'm a Brooklyn Trust member. My wife and I have been so for a couple of years, but. Interesting about the, uh, the lottery funding. Um, you've got a lot of money from that, and that's going to pay for everything that you're doing now, but you've got loads of plans again. Is there any chance that more funding could come from the lottery, or is that it? Is it a one-off thing that now you have to get money from elsewhere? No, um, we have been um, lucky, but I think you make your own luck uh, with this sort of thing. This is the latest and by far the biggest lottery grant we've ever had. Um, but we have had lottery grants before. Um, we were the first museum ever uh, in this country to buy an aeroplane with lottery money when we repatriated our Hawker Hurricane from Russia with a grant of about £100,000 from the lottery. We bought the Napier Railton with a grant of six, just over £600,000 from the lottery. We restored the motoring uh, village buildings with a grant from the lottery. The lottery helped us buy the Mike Beach collection have, uh, of historic aeroplanes, the little uh, things like the, the, the Blerio and, and others. So the door isn't, the door isn't closed. Um, it's getting increasingly difficult to get money out of the lottery. Um, fewer and fewer of you are buying tickets for the lottery. Um, I don't know what you're spending your money on, but you, for a few quid a week, you could be helping us and loads of other museums uh, and other cultural organisations to do a lot more. The lottery certainly don't regard it as a closed book. They are very encouraged by what we are doing. They've been hugely enthusiastic about what we've done, and they know about our other plans. And they say, don't assume you're going to get the money, but do come back to us when you want more. Reasonable. Anybody else here? Can I? Is that right here in the front uh, row? We've got one. Uh, <laughs> Richard Black from uh, Rotary Club of Shepparton and Sunbury. I was interested to ask whether there are any other museums in other countries which cover the same sort of ground that you do. Um, which is obviously uh, motor racing and aviation, and if so, do you have any links with them? Um, there are precious few that really embrace the two things. I mean, in this country, there's one other collection which comes close in a way, the uh, magnificent Shuttleworth collection over in uh, 
in Bedfordshire, which largely concentrates on keeping old aeroplanes alive, but they have quite a nice uh, motoring section as well. And of course, um, the Shuttleworth collection uh, is the Shuttleworth Family Trust, um, which uh, uh, commemorates uh, Richard Shuttleworth, who was a great Brooklyn driver and pilot. Um, now, there are other museums around the world that have um, enormous collections of cars and aeroplanes. Probably the standout one um, is the Technik Museum uh, on two sites in Germany, at Sinsheim and Speyer. Um, it's a private uh, collection rather than being a charitable trust like ourselves. But they have a um, heroic collection of aeroplanes and a much bigger collection of vehicles than we have. Um, it's all the, the inspiration of one mad uh, guy who styles himself Herman the German. Um, uh, he, he has a Concorde, um, uh, like us, uh, but he also has the Russian equivalent, uh, the Tupolev 144, and they're both on the roof of one of his museums uh, in takeoff attitude. Um, and uh, yes, I've known Herman for many years. Uh, we compare notes. Uh, I visit his place, he visits us. We, um, uh, we, we have strong links with him. We have links with other museums worldwide. Um, and we, uh, we borrow uh, vehicles from other people's museums. Um, we lend stuff uh, to people. We, uh, we're all in the same boat. We're all looking for um, the, the funding to help look after the amazing legacies that we're all celebrating in different ways, you know, different people's legacies from different countries. But uh, yeah, we work together wherever we can. Uh, and uh, you do as much as possible to learn from each other and support each other. Right, any other extended arms? I think I've beaten them into submission. Haven't you I? have. <laughs> Is there anything else you think you've left? Left out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, but I, I have to get home as well. Oh, yeah. uh, no, as, I, as I say, I've, I've got these slides, the 110 Brooklyn's claims to fame. I can, I can take you through them. But uh, uh, I think that's for another day. Yeah. But, uh, or, or, oh, there oh, there is one there. Just there. That's a little bit of history, and it will probably make you envious, but. Years ago, there used to be a little footbridge just about where the Bentley showroom is at the moment, over the track. In 1934, 35, 36, as a little boy, I used to stand on that footbridge and watch all those cars practicing and testing. And I, in fact, saw the Napier Railton uh, breaking that record. We didn't know it was breaking the record, but um, we found out afterwards it was an amazing little boy's experience, right? something I should never forget. I think that's yes, indeed. A little bit more. I can't even begin to match that. All I want to know is, have you ever met our audio history team? Have they come and interviewed you about what you need to do? Before you leave tonight, sir, you must have my card, and I must have your contact <laughs> The other interesting is that my father worked at the Vickers Armstrong for since he was 21 until he retired for 45 years and as a result of that I saw the 
the uh, various aircraft being built all the time, and we wandered, we wandered around many times. To his disgust, I never became an engineer. <laughs> but I'm not sure whether I should congratulate you on being the only person I've ever met who failed to fall under the spell of Brooklyn. Uh, to the rest of us, it's a sort of incurable disease. Uh, you know, once touched by Brooklyn's, you can't let it go. But um, yeah, I'd love to talk to you later and uh, see if we can uh, uh, arrange a meeting. And if any of the rest of you have aunts, uncles, or did it yourself, um, anybody who remembers uh, any of those great days of Brooklyn's, we have a fantastic audio um, uh, history that we've built up uh, with the team who do it and uh, yeah, we'd love to add to it. Unfortunately, out of the corner of my left eye, I can see somebody right up in the gods waving uh, <laughs> his hand with another question. Oh, yeah, there's a, a white... There's a, there's a microphone attacking you from the left, sir. Uh, I have a here, a map of Brooklands, dating back to 1949, and it's uh, quite an explanatory drawing done by an architectural firm, and all the details of Brooklyn's is on there. Uh, if anybody would like to take it for your use, you're welcome to keep it. Wow. Again, I'm loving saying, come and see me afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Well done. Fantastic, thank you Fantastic. very much. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Okay, is that uh, the last of the questions? In that case, I would again <coughs> ask you to put your hand... Sorry. <laughs> Somebody's... Oh. Go on then. Yes. Whoever you are. Um, we, as we approach the area, going into the supermarkets, we see this great gap in the run, in, in the old uh, motor track, um, are we going to see any more disasters like that, or has that been protected now? The whole of the surviving uh, parts of the track, um, and that includes um, the aerodrome road uh, that ran down uh, from the north end down down to the flying village at the south. All the bridges, which are the, uh, the South Circuit Bridge, the Aerodrome Road Bridge, uh, the Campbell Circuit Bridge, the Vickers Bridge uh, that, that we have leading into our place, plus all the surviving bits of both the Outer Circuit, the Finishing Strait, and the Campbell Circuit are all um, ancient monument and are protected by law. That doesn't stop people like uh, nameless contractors, um, normally with a slightly Irish name, green trucks, uh, working for EDF, uh, coming along and chopping uh, into, for instance, the Tesco banking and saying, oh, it's all right, we're allowed to do it, we're a utility company. We are constantly keeping our eyes on these people and uh, having to ring Historic England and telling them to, uh, um, you know, to, to get in and stop these guys from doing it. But it is all legally protected. So no more can be cut away, nothing should be able to be cut into. The only work that you would now be allowed to do is trying to bring it back into its original condition. How did that actually happen? 
great gap was allowed to be well, developed? The, 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 further, the major gap at the south end uh, was cut um, uh, just after the war. Um, there was a small gap cut uh, during the war to allow access directly into the, uh, the aircraft buildings at that end. But the major gap was cut when Vickers uh, decided that a grass airfield wasn't actually suitable for flying large jet bombers off. So when they started building the Valiant, um, uh, they uh, they cut, uh, they put in a 4,000 foot concrete runway and cut away the bifleet banking uh, to provide a bit of an undershoot so that as you thundered down the runway you weren't faced with a 20 foot high concrete wall. <laughs> um, and so that was the that, that was the, uh, the, the start of the degradation uh, and then obviously in the 1970s uh, to give access to uh, Tesco and Marks and Spencer, uh, Barnes Wallace Drive was cut through uh, the second cutting at that end and then the footpath from Wintercells Road, uh, people cut a set of concrete steps into the, uh, into the banking to allow people to walk over the top. And then, as I said, the, uh, the, the Henley Bridge at the north end was severely damaged in the flood of 68 and uh, demolished in 69. And then the last bit of track uh, that disappeared was uh, the bit where the Heights now is. That uh, disappeared under that development again in the, in the 1980s. And then when uh, uh, Gala has built uh, their uh, headquarters, uh, some of the track was lost then, but none of it can now be uh, dismantled any further. All right? Right, are there any other late hands? In that case, I would uh, ask you to put both hands together and thank our speaker for the evening. Thank you very much.